0: Welcome to Chapter 11, Episode 11, the 11th in a series of podcasts and lore by Rick. I'm your host, Rick Stump. I'm a longtime player of tabletop role-playing games, uh, a wide variety of them, spy games, fantasy games, super games, you name it. And my primary AD&D first edition campaign has been going on for almost 43 years. I use lore by Rick to talk about some of my own opinions and insights, and I do thank you for stopping by. If you like what you hear today have any comments, feedback, or want to learn more, please do feel free to visit my blog, which is harbingergames.blogspot.com. The blog has links to my Discord and several other sites, as well as some of my products, most of which are free. You can also reach me on social media, on MeWe, I'm Rick Stump. On Mines, I'm Rick Stump. And on Twitter, I am Rick and d Today I'm going to be speaking about something that has been coming up around the table that I've been playing with for about 44 years, and that is rules as written. Recently I did a podcast on Rule Zero and what, in my opinion, Rule Zero actually means, which is every game master has to make choices, about this, especially about the spaces in between the rules, and how do new spells and such, which are part of the game, affect D&D in such a way that even if you do play raw, rules as written, eventually campaigns diverge so much that players and uh, characters in one campaign are incompatible with other campaigns. Which Gary specifically mentions as something that's going to happen in the Dungeon Master's Guide. But this discussion today I'm having is something that has been coming up for as long and something I've been discussing with players for at least 15 years. My current Bastion Players and I have been talking about this in earnest for the last two years in particular. And I decided that it's a great follow-up to my discussion of Rule Zero. And that is, it's impossible to play AD&D First Edition rules as written in such a way that you're not conflicting with somebody else. This may be a bold statement, but I will be able to prove it to you. And it should be fairly simple. Let's start off with the Dungeon Master's Guide and the Player's Handbook. The Player's Handbook, of course, describes armor and explains that armor is a set that comes along and it has a helmet that gives you the same armor class as the rest of the armor. And yet, in the Dungeon Master's Guide, we find out there are different sorts of helmets that have different innate types of armor class. We also learned from the Dungeon Master's Guide that if you're not wearing a helmet, your head is armor class 10. So the Dungeon Master's Guide has fractional armor class or locational armor class built right in. And that unintelligent creatures will strike at an armored head randomly, and intelligent people and creatures will strike at your unarmored head at least half the time. Which leads to a fascinating sort of discussion, which is sort of rules zero, but sort of isn't. If you're wearing a magical open-faced helm with your plate full plate mail, your body is armor class zero, but your head is a lower armor class. Does this mean that intelligent creatures will be striking at your head half the time because it's got a worse armor class? That sure sounds like it. But how many people play this way when you get your helm of underwater action or your uh, helm of telepathy or your helm of teleportation, which is a different sort of helm than you may be wearing otherwise, do they have fraction armor class? Do they have people striking at it? Some do. For example, I do. Some don't. Does this mean that either one of us is not playing rules as written? where both playing rules as written, because it depends on whether you're looking at the player's handbook. The helmet matches, the you other know, their armor class. The Dungeon Master's Guide. My personal favorite in the Dungeon Master's Guide is, how much does magical armor weigh? In one part of the Dungeon Master's Guide, it states magical armor is weightless and gives you your full base movement, which is then modified by other encumbrance. And yet, in another section of the Dungeon Master's Guide, it states magical armor weighs half normal, weight, and if it uh, impedes movement, you are moved up one movement step from, for example, a base of six inches to a base of nine inches. These are directly contradictory. If you play either one, you're playing rules as written, and yet another campaign with the exact same books is going to have a completely different ruling. And since encumbrance matters, that's going to really impact what goes on with the game. And this is before we even get into custom magic items, custom spells. But another topic that people don't really think about very much is the fact that the AD&D First Edition rule set rolled out over the course of a decade. There are plenty of people that talk about how the Monster Manual came out in 1977 and was shortly followed by, or about the same time as the basic set. I myself cannot remember which came first, uh, it was a long time ago. I was, as I recall, nine. Uh, but I do remember I got the Monster Manual with, uh, effectively, my own birthday money. And my parents bought me the Basic set much later in the same year. So in my mind, it was Monster Manual and Basic. I have no idea uh, if the Basic set came out first. Personally, I won't be bothered to look it up. So at this point, you had od I had some of the books. They were already expensive and hard to get. Basic and the Monster Manual. When the Player's Handbook came out in 78, um, most of my friends that had Basic dropped it, except for the core rules of how you act, how you fight, those sorts of things, and they switched over to new classes. I was like that. I was primarily playing at that point in life. Uh, I would roll, uh, run a one or two shot uh, just to practice DMing. And then the Dungeon Master's Guide came out in 1979. Uh, the Dungeon Master's Guide, of course, is when I literally put away my basic set, put away my OD&D books, and did my very best to stick to that set of rules and play by AD&D First Edition, something I insist that I still do now as much as possible. But here comes the problem. The Deities and Demigods book was released in 1980. And has additional rules that are very important, and these rules are uh, include high level of high level wisdom, high level intelligence, high level strength, core characteristics, and they match what you see in the Dungeon Master's Guide for things like potions of giant strength or girdles of giant strength. So we can see that this is compatible, and it's there. These things are obviously important. ...and part of D&D, even if you never use the pantheons of the gods... ...those rules, which tell us more about characteristics and how they work... ...things like spell immunity for high characteristics or stats, are rules as written. These are official AD&D rules, and they are not just for the gods. We see heroes in the book, meaning high-level PCs or NPCs in this case... ...who have exceptional stats and have all those bonuses... And since rules is written in the Dungeon Master's Guide, it's shockingly easy <coughs> excuse me, for a human cleric to have a wisdom of 22, having the stats at hand is very important. So, if you've never bought the Dungeon, excuse me, the Deities and Demigods, you may not have all the statistics on what a wisdom of 22 really means. So, you might not use it. Is that rules as written? Maybe. But if you do have the deities and demigods, and you are giving your cleric with a 20 wisdom his extra bonus spells and his immunities, are you playing rules as written? Yes. But again, there's a divergence between those two tables. And then in 1981, the Fiend Folio came out. The Fiend Folio was more monsters. Um, a shocking number of people at the time did not seem to like the Fiend Folio. The art was up for a lot of criticism, some of the creatures were seen as silly. Uh, some people rejected it and said, I'm not going to run the Fiend folio. I will not have these monsters in there. That's up to you. Uh, I think that's a prime example of Rule Zero. Uh, I have a mature campaign that's X number of years old, two, three years old. I don't want to add these monsters all at once or any of them, move forward. But the difference between people who do and don't is an important one. And then in 1982... I think one of the most interesting portions about the rollout of first edition came when Gary started writing official rules into Dragon Magazine. Um, This started way back when, in 1982. I believe that the very first example was in Dragon Magazine number 59, which I think was March of 82. And in the bit there, I've got some of it here, um... And this is why Gary says this is a quote. Quote the with plenty of labor and warlock, there will be an advanced Dungeons and Dragons expansion volume next year, for players and DMs alike, with several new character classes, new weapons, scores, new spells, new magic items, etc. What will follow here in the next few issues is a sampling of material related for uh, inclusion as expansion. End quote. So he was putting these out and specifically stated these are official rules that are coming in a supplement. And he started off with uh, Magic using Cantrips. I remember owning Issue 59 when it came out. Uh, I was very excited. It had some great Traveler content that I've used more than once. Um, but more importantly, I immediately began using Cantrips. Um, it's an official rule. It's perfectly fine. I thought it was fascinating. Uh, the players really enjoyed it. Now, if you didn't have a subscription to Dragon Magazine and no access to it, you're not running Cantrips unless you've invented them on your own. Was I playing Rules as Written? Technically, yes, I was. These are specifically from Gary, and it's specifically for AD&D First Edition. So that's my guys having cantrips, was Rules as Written. And this followed up with Illusionist Cantrips. Uh, We added orisons when they came along. Weapons Specialization was released in Dragon Magazine, which was very much to my chagrin. I was actually working on my own Weapon Mastery Rules. Uh, where certain classes of fighter could become even better with one or two weapons. And I had written them out longhand just two weeks before the Dragon Magazine with weapon specialization came out. Uh, the, my friends of my campaign, that were playing my campaign, gave me ribbing, and I ended up using those weapon mastery rules for just my noblemen, who do not have access to normal specialization. And then certain classes, fighter, and then to some extent, barbarians get access to specialization. Um... So this stuff came along, and a lot of us added this as we went. And it didn't stop there. It certainly didn't stop there. After the, um, uh, monster, after the monster Manual 2 came out, and if you pay attention, to Monster Manual 2 assumes that you are using the Deities and Demigods book. It really does, just like the Fiend Folio does. There's an assumption there that you have access to the rules about higher stats, access to the rules about... Uh, how those higher stats work in both books. But in <clears throat> as this goes on, uh, you're going to see that the creators of the game, Gary included, considered these rules to be official and real. And then, boy, after Monster Manual 2, did the fun start. And then we're talking, more, of course, about Oriental Adventures, which came in 1985. Again, a lot of people at the time did not buy Oriental Adventures. They weren't interested in anything like that. It wasn't something that was part of their concept for the campaign. Again, perfectly fine. (coughs) Excuse me, the pollen's kill me today. Perfectly fine if you want nothing to do with that. That is a rule zero uh, thing that you're doing there. And rule zero is perfectly acceptable. But the fact of the matter is that means if I did do it and I did quickly embrace those rules, I'm also playing by the rules. And let's, uh, let's read a quote from the introduction to Oriental Adventures from September of 1985 by Gary himself. And it says, quote, The year 1980 had not arrived when I began thinking about a version of the AD&D game that would feature Oriental campaigns and characters. Good intentions aside, it's taken this long to achieve the desired goal with the talents of both David Zeb Cook and Francois Marcel Fradoval in order to arrive as early as 85. Because the game system has changed over the intervening years, the exact nature of the approach taken herein differs from that which was originally envisioned. I am convinced that the alteration is for the better, and as you partake of the information herein and put it into play, I am certain you will concur. Oriental Adventures is a completely new resource for the ad and game system. As you develop your Oriental Adventures campaign, it is recommended to remove the monk character class in European-style campaigns. Why? because what is found here in the superior and in the proper surroundings as well. End quote. So you can see here, Gary is explicitly pointing out the fact that the books that have been released in between and the rules that were released in between have added to the rules of D&D. So when by the, the Oriental Adventures book had to be continually edited as it was being made uh, by the, his staff with his feedback in order to get there. Now, I've heard people say, I don't use Oriental Adventures because Gary didn't really write it. Well... Congratulations for using Rule Zero and having your own house rules. Gary also, as far as I remember, I don't think the Ranger, Thief, or Paladin were invented by Gary. He just added them to AD&D after they came out in supplements. Top of my head, don't sue me if I'm wrong, and he made one or more of those. I know that the monk itself actually was originally a concept. Somebody wanted to play the Destroyer from the creator, of the Destroyer pulp novels. Um, that came out, and I'm a big fan of, when I'm alone in the desert in the war. So we have a lot of people already putting in official rules into the game. And here we see specifically that Gary is recommending, if you've got an Earth Arcana, get rid of the other monk and use the one from here instead. And the rules have changed. So there's a conscious statement from the designer of the game of AD&D First Edition that rules as written have grown and the interaction has changed. We also have the forward from the other big bomb that dropped in 1985, which is... Unearthed Arcana. Now, if anything has caused more division than Unearthed Arcana when it first dropped, I can't think of off the top of my head as something to do with first edition. Maybe later editions, but this sucker really was a bomb of um, edition where it's starting up. It came out in the spring. I remember getting it very early. I'd already read most of the important stuff in Dragon Magazine, so um, it was a gift. Uh, And I'm grateful for that gift to this day. Thanks, Mom. Um, And it was a ton of fun. But let's read the introduction from that, also written by Gary. Quote, all the participants of the campaign will find this material of greatest interest and benefit to them. Dungeon masters will discover new subraces and their interrelationships, new deity models for non-humans, and much more the way of magic, a trove of spells and items indeed. Players, of course, benefit from all of that and more. There are new horizons for demi-human characters, new professional callings, new weapons, new approaches, just about everything. Yes, some of this material has appeared previously, but here it is revised, edited, and compiled to change it from a possible insertion to an integral part of a vital campaign. There are new choices, new possibilities, new opportunities, and new ideas laid out here. Best of all, these rest upon the solid foundation of the AD&D game system, the most widely and accept uh, most widely accepted and played role playing game in the world. End quote. So again, Gary is specifically stating that these are official rules. Uh, this is rules as written, and it's going to be good for your campaign. Lots of people didn't like it. I know tons of people that uh, do not use the barbarian uh, as written in here. I know tons of people who don't use any of it. Um, and that's fine, but understand that at this point in May and then September of 1985, rules as written for AD&D First Edition, if you were to ask Gary, if you were asked ask TSR, and if you were to ask a lot of Dungeon Masters at the time, included Deities and Demigods, Unearthed Arcana, and Oriental Adventures. And people were using them, and it's raw some people did never bought them some people never used them that is fine but were they playing raw by rejecting them in any other way than the the fact that they were exercising rule zero well yes maybe maybe not let's go on and talk about the stuff that came out in 1986. Uh, we have uh, something came out in april and something came out in september the april book was the dungeoneer's survival guide uh, again, the Dungeoneer Survival Guide was not a, uh, was not a uh, necessarily universally adopted system, but it was popular and it uh, remains popular. Just the mining rules alone in the book are worth the price of admission. Um, it, was a, it was an amazing project to come out and make things more explicit, and I think that it also did something else very well. Uh, As I've mentioned in my blog before, there was this mistaken idea that cropped up in between 1978 and about 1982 that if a certain class could do something, nobody else could. I heard things like, oh, my cleric's going to hide behind some bushes. Well, you can't hide. You're not a thief. Well, I can just lay down behind some... No, no, you don't have hiding shadows. You can't hide. Or uh, 80 orcs have stolen 20 wagons and 50 mules and taken them across a muddy field. We follow them. How? Well, we're gonna follow the tracks. You don't have a range in the party; you can't track. Ridiculous stuff. Not that you know. Not realizing that climbing walls is nobody could climb that wall, and then the thief climbs it. And follow, you know, rangers tracking is oh, they there's nobody could follow those tracks, and a ranger tracks anyway. So they made sure that that stuff was explicit. Anybody can scale a wall if they got a rope and pitons and ledges. Anyone can hide in the dark behind a bush if they are laid still and be quiet, et cetera. That was important, but it added in a lot of other topics. Um, What happens when you get too cold? You know what happens when you run out of light sources. What happens when you run out of food? Um, And there you go. Uh, Let's see here. But there's also a bit here um, from the introduction again. Uh, This one was not written by Gary. This was written by Doug Niles. And it says, quote, The advanced Dungeons & Dragons system continues to be the most popular role-playing game in the world. As the RPG hobby evolves, so naturally ADD ad and game system should continue to grow. The roots of the game lie deep within the earth and the dungeons and realms where most of us going to start. Uh, that's the end part there. Um, again, these are, it makes it very clear that these are official rules, and if you're using them, you're playing by the book. Um, and then the book that came out later that same year was the Wilderness Survival Guide in the exact same um, mode as the Dungeon of Survival Guide, with a lot more things about tents and campfires. And there they came out in September. Um, again, I grabbed both of these books. I thought they were wonderful. Um, I still use them to this day as an integral part of my campaign. Um, but you have to understand, by the time the errata came out for the Survival Guide's As I recall, that was um, in 1987. They had some errata issues come out. So that means that between the date that they released the Monster Manual to the date they released the errata for the Wilderness Survival Guide was a decade, 10 years. During that entire time, which is longer than some games survive before they get to a second or third edition, And longer than some some games survived before the company that made them goes out of business and completely unsupported, a decade, the rules for Dungeons and Dragons continued to change and continued to grow and continued to have accretions. These were official rules from the official maker, and lots of people adopted them and continued to grow their campaigns. I'm not special, I'm not unique. Lots of people ditched BASIC and started playing ADD. Buy the books, the first three books when they came out. Lots of people did. But then when the fiend folio came along, you added stuff from the fiend folio. When the Monster Manual 2 came along, when the Dungeons when the Deities and Demigods came along, when these books came along, you continued to add. I know tons of people that hated the Unearthed Arcana for various reasons, and yet added all of the magic user and illusionist spells and the cleric spells and the druid spells, etc., to their campaign. I know plenty of people that really liked Oriental Adventures, but kept the European-style monk, the one for the Player's Handbook. And this is no different than other options that you have. For example, in the Player's Handbook, there's an appendix, a rather infamous one. It carries a class called the Bard. It states that that class is optional. So even if you insist that only the first three books... Our rules is written. You can have a campaign with bards and one without. But the bard is specifically mentioned in the official encounter charts for the Dungeon Master's Guide. It is. If you go through you an encounter with um, characters, you have to check to see if one of them is a bard, just like you have to check to see if one of them is a monk. And these occur. I actually have a 23rd level bard in my campaign that was originally a random encounter. We roll on the charts, find a castle... Who's running the castle? It's a 23rd level bard. So if you exclude the bard, that means that you've got to modify or ignore all the official encounter charts for characters inside the game. Are you really playing raw? Yes. Which way? With or without bards? Yes, it says it's an option. What I find fascinating is a large number of people over the last... I'd say 10 years as part of the OSR, have been trying to go back and say, this is rules as written. And I think there's a strong reason why a lot of people in the OSR prefer BX, Basic and Expert, because Basic and Expert and Beckme sort of were frozen in time in a a way that AD&D wasn't. While there were releases over time and the Rules Companion changed some stuff, there wasn't that year-by-year crawl that you had almost with D&D where it seemed like every year or two there were more official rules coming out that would change things. And I think that it's easier to put a stake in the ground for BASIC and say, okay, here's where I stop. I stop with BX. BX is when Rules is Written was done. And I think that that's why some people in the US are avoid ad first edition. It's really hard to put that stake down and say, here's where rules as written stop. And no matter where you put that stake down, there is a strong argument that what you're doing is only rule 0 Your fiat choice to say, these official rules for ad first edition aren't official for my table. And it also avoids... One of the biggest issues about first edition that has always been the case. And that is this. Any attempt, and this is a personal opinion, in my opinion, any attempt to say this is rules as written and nothing else is, is just the first version of edition wars. It's trying to cement your personal opinion and preference as rules. And I don't think that's sustainable. We have Gary himself saying, the rules have grown. Gary himself saying, this is on the foundation of AD&D. Gary himself saying, change this rule, change that rule. If you want to come in to the Church of Gary or whatever, you can't really reject him and say that he's wrong when he's doing this. It's akin to saying, well, under, uh, Oriental Adventures wasn't really written by Gary. Well, it's his idea. It was his project. He managed it. And then when it was done, he said, these are official rules. Go play them. Um, personally, I'm not in a religion. D&D is a hobby that I enjoy. I have a great deal of fun with it. I've been playing it a great deal of time. Uh, the, one of the reasons I made this podcast, which is on its way to being one of the longest I've ever made without a guest, is simple. In my opinion, based upon what I just said, it is effectively impossible to say that somebody is or is not playing raw, simply because they're using some of the options from the book. And if they've used Rule Zero over the years to modify a few things and the core concepts of AD&D are there, then it's raw. you get your morale checks, you get your random monster checks, you're using you know, armor class and charts, etc. You put in some critical hits, all right, sure, put in critical hits. You've slightly changed the initiative system, So it's easier or has a better flow for your table. You're using segmented combat at all times. Feel free. You've added entirely new races of uh, NPC monsters. Didn't everybody? Um, Your characters have a catalog of 20 or 30 spells built up over the years. Unique to your campaign. That's what you're supposed to do. But um, again, this isn't as long as you're having fun. It's a great game. As long as is allow, you're having fun with a coherent set of rules where you can point to where they came from in the book, you're playing AD&D. Um, feel, I'm, I assume this is going to generate some controversy and get some comments. Please remember, to, I got some comments in the beginning in the, and some links here. You can come in and make comments to me. And I would love to hear what people have to say about this. Thank you very much for your time and attention today. It means a great deal for a hobbyist like myself that anyone at all cares about my opinion or my insights. Um, I have nothing to say but my gratitude for the people that tune in, and I look forward to speaking to you again soon.